Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candice Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, Joseph Sinkovic, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Mizaida, author, psychic, spellcaster, root worker, and witch. And you can find her at mizaida.com, M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A.com. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. And you can find Ginger at tarotbyginger.com. And she is a tarot reader, evidential medium, and healer. And that is at tarotbyginger.com. And now, our guest for today is Jay Waxenberg, and he is from the Center of Medicinal Mindfulness. Thank you for coming on today. Yeah, happy to be here. Happy to talk about the work. Yes. So, how did you get into this journey? Uh, so, it was back in 2016, mm-hmm. and I was doing a Master's in Consciousness and Artificial Intelligence. And I was the only person in the program who was uh, basically an atheist and pretty militant about materialism around consciousness. And a professor took me aside one day and really gently alluded to psychedelics and uh, said, maybe I should try that same week as the universe goes. Uh, Shaman was visiting a friend, a roadman, and... A friend reached out and said, oh, would you be interested in joining this ayahuasca circle that's happening? So, okay, sure. And uh, basically in a single experience, a single evening, I went from this very militant kind of atheist Mm -hmm. materialist to just knowing that it was all true to some extent and and that I needed to devote my life in some way to exploring it more. And that was kind of the first uh, step on the path that eventually would lead me to what I'm doing now. Wow. So, so what was it during that experience? Like, what did you experience during that ayahuasca ceremony that hit you, made such a profound change in you? Yeah, I, I had, um, you know, what folks will describe as an ego death experience. Mm-hmm. And so I, I had been studying all different types of uh, maps of consciousness, thanks to, to what I was studying at the time. And so I was familiar with Buddhism and uh, just a few other kind of esoteric ways of, of imagining reality. And this experience was, was that it was a felt version of, of kind of this unity state. I felt like one with all of reality after I, my ego had died. And uh, so I really felt in some way that that was pointing to that there were these other layers of reality and all these other things. And so it really just yanked me out of a space of going, no, there's nothing but just the brain and, you know, all this other stuff doesn't make any sense. And uh, it was very much a, a a first step that, that I needed to explore for the next half decade or so, but Mm -hmm. uh, it was one that was uh, a giant leap more than a step actually. So how does one explore that? Did you like um, move to South America and just become like an ayahuasca shaman or was it something that you learned here in the States? Yeah. um, So basically kind of two pieces, two parts to it. The first part was I was still in school and 
ironically, I had talked to my mother the night before. I was like, I think I'm going to go do this ayahuasca thing. And she said, great, just don't drop out of school. And of course, I came out of the experience going, oh, well, I think I'm going to drop out of school because this is all that matters. And I knew I had told her that. And so I reached out to almost 100 professors, everybody I had taken through undergrad and into my graduate work, and said, okay, I, I want to study psychedelics and spirituality. And basically, no one was okay with that, except for a single professor who wrote me back and was like, did you have an experience? And, you know, let's, let's talk about it. And he kind of mentored me for the next year, and I changed into a different program and mm-hmm. basically was studying um, a mystical experience, uh, but using the lens of psychedelics. Did that for a year, and as soon as I graduated, I, so- I sold everything I owned, I, uh, my car and apartment and everything I had, and then I spent the next couple years traveling to different spiritual communities. I started in the United States because I was a little... Uh, a little scared to go overseas, but mm-hmm. that went away really quickly. And I ended up in India and Nepal and Thailand, Israel, Spain, a few other places, um, and just really living in spiritual communities. And during that time, I also became an ordained interfaith minister and uh, really kind of just exploring all of the maps, trying to make sense of what was going on. But I was always the psychedelic one, asking the monks and nuns mm-hmm. what they thought about it, these kinds of things. Uh, and once I was done with that phase, uh, ended up here in Colorado, there was uh, a school called Psychedelic Sitter School, which I'm a training program director of now. Uh, I t- did all of their trainings and kind of comboed the two uh, modalities together. Wow. So during your journeys, um, like, I know, like, one of the things I think is common, like, too, is like, or the people is coming into light now, really. I, I think, like, when I was younger, it wasn't talked about. But about shamans, you know, the use of plant medicines in with with shamans. Like, the only books out there were on it were like the um, or the the Don Juan books, mm-hmm. you know. But mm-hmm. that that was pretty much it. Was all the information you could really find on it, and whether that stuff was actually accurate or not, I don't know. Um, I mean, there's definitely some good nuggets of wisdom in those books, for sure. Um, but that was it, you know. And I don't think people realize how how these plant medicines really have been with us for like 3,000 years mm. or more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, some books now that are out. And, and I, I feel like I caught it at just the, the perfect time. You know, my family, when I first said this, just like the professors all said no, but one said yes. Mm-hmm. And all my family, when I sold everything, and was like, oh, I'm going to go to India and study you know, psychedelics and spirituality. And everybody laughed at me. And But Michael Pollan's book came out and I think really shifted the cultural understanding that uh, these things were lost to our particular culture, Western civilization, but had been around everywhere else. And um, books like the Immortality Key now are talking about Christian kind of roots that are, you know, uh, embedded into the psychedelic space. And so now I think our culture is recognizing that some of these other indigenous cultures had held on to something that we lost. Mm -hmm. And um, so we're re-engaging it in a different way. And I have a lot of thoughts on how our medical model happens to be engaging with it, which I don't think is super wonderful, but uh, they, these things have been, you know, tens of thousands of years uh, in, in human history and connected to us. Uh, we're now rediscovering that for, for ourselves, even though other folks around the world have 
have known it the whole time. It, yeah, it's, it's really, really fascinating. What do you think happened? Why do you think we lost touch with our connection to these plant medicines? That is a good, big question. I know. <laughs> um, you know, I think I would use some buzzwords that are around our culture now, like colonialism and imperialism and some of these things. I, I, I'd look towards, you know, the what early stages of the Roman Empire, meeting Christianity, and uh, really the control of these bigger instit- power hierarchical institutions that, that were embedded in Western civilization. And, you know, anyone who's done a psychedelic knows that they're very disruptive to our sense of reality and uh, also really connect us into, you know, nature and uh, to, to the feminine and to some of these things that are um, sometimes dangerous to these power structures. And so over time, mm-hmm. you know, this, this kind of, they just stamped it out everywhere. You know, I believe folks like Celtic traditions and Norse traditions and all of the pagan kind of elements in Western uh, Europe were using some kind of plant-based rituals, whether they were all psychedelic or not, it's a totally different topic, but those were all stamped out uh, in that same kind of wave of uh, trying to dominate the, the human consciousness and same thing happened then when we crossed the Atlantic and uh, did the same thing to the indigenous folks that were here before us why do you think this resurgence is happening now hmm. that is a good question I think there are so many folks who have been fighting so long for this uh, I think Rip, Rick Doblin's a good example at, at, at maps uh, who has really been pioneering MDMA, which isn't necessarily plant medicine, but he saw the crackdown coming from the 60s and 70s, which is kind of where it was the last kind of stamp out that our culture had, where there was this resurgence of the the folks who had discovered indigenous people in South America still using these things, brought them back to the United States. And because our culture didn't have a tradition of holding these things and a I would say in a sacred way, but, or just in a conscious way, mm-hmm. we were just like, give everybody acid. We'll be enlightened. Um, that's the government contracted. People contracted around that and stamped everything out. And many people from that time period. So the, I would say psychedelic elders now, um, knew that these things were healing, knew that these things could change the world and spent the next couple decades, you know, doing everything they could to make these things legal. And, um, I think, Strassman's work in the 90s around DMT kind of cracked the door open a bit and um, just lots of hardworking folks just doing everything they could to get this legal and um, just somehow everything let me back up real quick one thing I would name around this too is our culture our society is in, uh, in some danger that I think we all feel on some level collectively uh, we're just our institutions aren't working as well as they should. And are, are, we're pretty divided in our thinking right now. And as climate change and these other pressures start to add in there, we're all some way seeking something to help us to, to get us out of this condition. And I think psychedelics plus all this hard work of these folks kind of came together at the same time to bring the, what's called the psychedelic renaissance for our culture. Mm-hmm. So you- 
it, it, one of the things that you said about psychedelics, it, I think that, um, Stephen Gray has a book called How, How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so, but this all sort of does go back to consciousness though and realizing that the reality that we we're experiencing through just the five senses is only a piece of reality and that when you use a psychedelic or meditation or any other ways where you're where even like no matter what you do to try to explore reality you're always going to find that there is more than what you're experiencing with the five senses yeah. and and i think like like psychedelics definitely just breaks that shell oh yeah yeah i think um I had witnessed a conversation, uh, a video of uh, Terrence McKenna and Ram Dass, both uh, who I highly respect, and mm-hmm. I got to spend some time studying with Ram Dass at one really? point. Cool. Yeah. And um, in that conversation, they were both kind of pointing to this of like, oh, you know, something something's not w- well with our culture. We're unwell. And uh, Ram Dass is talking about meditation and yoga and these things. And Terrence McKenna's basically point blank just asking, like, do you think we have time for that do we have time for everybody to go spend a few years in the ashram or in the temple and uh, you know i'm with terence mckenna in that i don't think we do i don't think most folks today in, in, in our culture have the capacity or the time to devote toward to cultivate meditation for the years that it takes to really reach some of these expanded states of consciousness Whereas you can give them, you know, three and a half grams of mushrooms and it's going to take them to that space. They don't get to stay there, uh, but they get a taste of it. And that in itself expands consciousness. And, and I've seen it over and over again of folks who just immediately will realign most of the values in their life mm-hmm. uh, just from, you know, one or two experiences. Right. At the very least, I think it awakens the seeker inside of us. Yes. Yes. And once that seeker becomes awake, you know, anything is possible. Um, but you're right. You know, not, I mean, I mean, we're in a situation where we're living basically in servitude towards banks and governments and religions and things like that. And for us to break away for three years to go live in a cave isn't going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I'm, I'm, my story is a prime example of being really blessed and being in a position to do that. Uh, I was able to sell enough things to, to go and buy the time that it took to spend time. I lived in, in monasteries and ashrams and I was able to reach those states on my own without the medicine. It was sort of me trying to prove it to myself so that I knew that, okay, actually I can trust these medicines. I can trust those experiences and, and then kind of cultivate that. But mm. almost everybody I work with doesn't have the time or the capacity to do that. Certainly if you have a family, you know, you got a mortgage, but you could go live in a cave for three years. I don't think so. Mm. Um, but you can take the time a week, uh, a month to, uh, to work with these medicines and to work on your mental health and to really find those values, expand yourself and, and start yourself on a journey that, um, pretty much all spiritual folks know is a lifelong journey, but uh, kind of boosts you uh, onto it a bit. Yeah. That's interesting. So you've had these same experiences without the medicines as you did with the medicines through 
more tradition or not even just more just through meditative means yes yeah i think uh for me i did three silent uh retreats back to back and somewhere around the second one halfway through the second one i had an experience that was roughly equivalent to some of my psychedelic experiences and i I remember like coming out of that and just go well okay it's it's real like the meditation is just as real as the psychedelics that means the psychedelics were real and uh i also found living in in the paul in our monastery there most of the western uh, monks and nuns had come over in the 60s and 70s and had all experienced lsd or mushrooms at some point and that's what put them on the path and i always find that uh just quite funny that that they put it away and and often uh, look down upon that as just not a, you know a valid spiritual path, even though it was the thing that kick started their spiritual path. That is unusual. It is weird, but but you know we were raised with that. You know, the drugs had that stigma. You know, yeah, and, and, and just say no, dare program, all of that. Yeah, yeah, especially when uh, Nancy and Ronald Reagan came along, and it really became demonized. Um, so one of the things I've noticed too on, on the website is that you consider cannabis a psychedelic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it like, like in what way is cannabis a psychedelic? Yeah. So we like to, there's a few names we like to throw around around this, but, uh, it's a somatic psychedelic, I would say. And, and it also gives you a lot of agency and control. Um, I'm, I'm a stoner. I think I can safely say that, uh, you know, use cannabis uh, all through college and, and afterwards. And uh, I never had any psychedelic experiences that, like most folks that use cannabis. It's available to more than 65 million Americans at this point. Um, but most folks will, you know, roll a joint and hang out on their couch or, you know, watch a sunset or something. And it's a beautiful experience, but it isn't psychedelic. Uh, and that is kind of because it's it's such a it just has a lot of agency with it and so what we'll do with folks is have them lay down just like a normal psychedelic session put on some eye shades we'll play some music for them after they've imbibed a a certain amount of cannabis we work with particular blends so we combo different strains together to kind of create this effect um and then it is very psychedelic. People have these visions and they see things and they feel things in their body. And uh, I, I think I, like most, was like, uh, is that really a psychedelic? I, I went to my first training through our, our program, which we use cannabis as the training tool all the way through, uh, thinking, okay, I'm just going to do this to learn the skills so that I can work with psilocybin or something else, and had these profound visionary experiences. And it just shifted my way of viewing it. And, uh, I, when I was going through my training, I practiced with my friends who are all stoners as well. Mm-hmm. And people who use concentrate on a regular basis, every one of them had experiences. And so after a certain time, I just became a believer. I was like, okay, well, if it's, if it's working every time that I do it with other folks and every time that I do it in this way, uh, then it certainly has to be that. And, um, the research hasn't yet come out around this, um, but we've conducted some of our own studies and everything that, that, that we're finding is, is pointing towards the fact that this is a psychedelic 
that it creates visionary experiences, that it helps people feel into their body in a different way, into their emotions in a different way, um, and can be just as profound uh, as these other medicines. What strings work the best? Well, we like to create a, a blend which is uh, one-third sativa, one-third indica, and one-third hybrid. These things kind of balance each other out. If, if folks are familiar with cannabis, uh, the sativa is a little racy, gives you a little bit more energy, a little more focus. Uh, indica is a little more down into the body, a little slower, helps people sleep sometimes, these kinds of things. So when you combo them together, they balance each other out mm -hmm. and kind of take the best qualities from each. Uh, we have uh, we, some relationships with the dispensaries here in Boulder, Colorado, and we have cannabis specialists who will meet our clients and help create the strains that are available at the time to create the perfect blend. And um, this, I think, is, is one of the kind of beautiful pieces of being able to work with cannabis and, and having it been legal long enough that people have developed these strains and uh, the different um, plants i can't remember the name of the word the words escaping me but people have just worked with these plants long enough now that they're pulling out these qualities uh and often i'll joke with my older clients it's like this isn't the weed that you used to smoke <laughs> <laughs> interesting um can people do that on their own can like a person you know create their own blend and then put on a blindfold and some music and absolutely an uh, so our fam founder daniel mcqueen mcqueen has written a book uh, psychedelic cannabis breaking gate uh, and that i think is all you really need it's a wonderful manual it tells folks how to do this step by step uh, and i you know find that it's cannabis in particular is such a safe medicine that this is something you can 100 percent do on your own the only kind of caveat I would add there is if somebody has a lot of trauma, like if you know your life and you know that you've had a lot of really difficult experiences and it's hard to kind of deal with those things, that it might be good to have a guide with you and to, uh, to work with somebody that knows how to process trauma and sequence it in the correct ways so that you don't necessarily get overwhelmed from the experience like this, which is really going to help you feel into all of these things. And like all of the other psychedelics, uh, are comboed with the plant intelligence and our own kind of inner healing it's going to take you right to what needs to be seen what needs to be healed uh, and that can be overwhelming sometimes for folks but uh, i certainly think this medicine is safe to do uh, on your own and uh, just a slight little bit of guidance from a book or do something like that will take you there do you think that like or or have you have you does cannabis have its own spirit, its own soul, its own awareness, its own consciousness? Do you think that the plant is aware that it's actually helping people? I do, yes. Um, you know, my background, like I mentioned here, is, uh, as an interfaith minister, um, has really all been built around these medicines. That's what started me on this path. And um, certainly the shamanic cultures, the indigenous folks that are, are lineage keepers with specific medicines will tell you like these medicines have spirits. Uh, over time, I've learned to kind of trust those spirits and, and to feel the differences between them. Um, I think 
we, we talk about cannabis being this kind of shape shifter uh, and, and, and in a feminine voice, we, you know, we say she's mm-hmm. a bit of a shape shifter and uh, can mimic some of these other experiences for folks. Um, and I genuinely think that, that the plant knows that we're using it for healing, whether that is the average human in America right now who's maybe just struggling and just wants to feel good. And that's what cannabis can provide them, whether that's somebody that's a chronic pain sufferer and, and just needs some relief from that, um, or the somebody who's going to go try to have one of these visionary experiences. I, I truly believe that, that the, the medicine, that, that cannabis knows that, that we're using it in this way and wants us to use it in this way. Mm-hmm. What about... Um, psychedelics that are not natural, like LSD. Yeah, I've had some interesting conversations with folks around um, ketamine in particular, just happens to be the one that I've been working with, um, where uh, I'd say more lineage keepers, folks who are in indigenous communities who have spoken to me about it, will say something along the lines of, it has a spirit. But it's a like a very baby, like a newborn spirit, something that hasn't been around long enough. And mm-hmm. so the more that we use these things, the more that we interact with them, the more that they will kind of come alive and, and have their own spirit. Um, I think with LSD and, and ketamine, um, I haven't necessarily felt that yet. Um, and I think it's because it's just we haven't been using it long enough. Mm -hmm. I would imagine, and this is just me going far out uh, uh, into my thoughts, but I would imagine something like MDMA and LSD would be the first ones because we've been using them since the 60s in in very similar ways for folks uh, over and over and over and over again. And I think um, if they're going, if a spirit's going to appear in one of those medicines, it'll be one of those two. Yeah, uh, you know, one of the things too, and I think, you know, when I think about that, you know, there's also sort of an interaction between us and the spirit. In a way, our a person's use and a person's, um, I don't know, respect or or whatever it is. I can't think of the word right now. For that chemical develops over time, we kind of create a spirit for it. Yeah, so I think. Uh... You know, like in, in Hindu culture, for instance, you can basically create a god for mm-hmm. anything. And it's very welcomed within that culture. And somebody like uh, Aldous Huxley wrote a lot about this in, in the late 60s, early 70s, and and really was kind of pointing, trying to allude to this idea that, um, that yeah, there's, there's an energetic feedback loop. And the more that we put into mm-hmm. that loop, the more that comes back to us. Um, and so like the things that are more ancient that we've been working with for a long time have these stronger kind of entities. And, um, as somebody who's just, uh, really started working with, uh, psilocybin with others now, since it legalized here in Colorado, um, I, I like heard it from my team. I've seen, I've witnessed it. Like these things have real, some kind of entity in that space, some kind of thing that is interacting with us back. Um, and that's just because we've been using mushrooms for so long so that there's some kind of loop, some kind of energetic process that has been initiated and has been going on for quite some time. What do you think the, the trajectory is for the legalization of cybacillin nationally or federal? 
level of it? I, I think it's coming uh, because it's just, it's almost undeniable, you know, um, that, and I, I kind of believe what we've here, done here in Colorado, um, decriminating everything and uh, all, all natural medicines and the Natural Medicines Health Act is similar to when Colorado legalized recreational cannabis and that it will kind of domino effect around. Um, Oregon also legalized uh, before us, but they haven't quite got their stuff figured out. Um, and so I think just over time, it will, they, they can't hold back the floodgates. We're so hungry for healing. We're so hungry for something that can just help us navigate the situation that our culture has found itself in that, uh, it's going to come one way or the other. Um, and one of the psychedelics, who knows which one is going to pop that floodgate and, and they're going to have to deschedule it. And when they do do that, they'll probably reschedule most of the psychedelics. Wow. We'll see. It's taken them a long time with the cannabis. I mean, cannabis is, I think, legal now in like 27 states, I think, or something like that. And but yeah. yet, but at a national level, they're still dragging their feet. I think cannabis was kind of the front runner, but also as uh, I found just working in this field, uh, cannabis is kind of the black sheep of the medicines, anyways. Like even of the psychedelics. People kind of look down upon it. Uh, many of the ayahuasca churches, for instance, ban people from using it. Um, and so that one tried to get through, didn't didn't get there yet. Um, but some of these other ones uh, that are being you know used to treat PTSD in very controlled studies, mm-hmm. and every single one of them is coming back and saying like this this is not just working; it's it's working better than anything we've ever used. That they can't hold back that process right. in the FDA. And, and so when one of those goes, it'll probably drag the other ones. But you think, I, my guess is, though, it'll probably be strictly medicinal, probably in a controlled environment, and ridiculously expensive. Uh, that's the fear, 100%. But a couple things that we really just want to happen, which is we want to take them out of Schedule 1. And basically, Schedule 1 is the government's way of saying there's nothing of benefit here. Nothing medically, nothing research-wise, nothing, 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 nothing. We all know that that's not true for something like cannabis um, or even psilocybin, things that we've been using for thousands of years. But the government's still out there saying, like, no, 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 which means that none of the cannabis folks can get insurance. None of them can get uh, bank accounts. None of them can Mm -hmm. get federal loans, all these things like that. So just descheduling them, even if it's only in this narrow window of medical research or something like this, will move the entire field forward and and will begin to protect other folks. And I think Colorado is a good example. We Oregon was legalized and it was this small, narrow window, which is why they're having some trouble uh, getting off the ground. And then the folks here in Colorado looked at that law and said, no, let's let's decrim everything and give a small, narrow window. Uh, and I, I imagine that the kind of next iterations throughout the country will will build on that. And uh, eventually we'll get some places that will um, really be giving accessibility to everybody, uh, even if the whole nation doesn't get there. Hmm. Well, there is already a weird accessibility. Like on Amazon, you can buy 
like a, a, a bag of manure and a, a thing of spores and just make your own anyway. And it's legal. <laughs> yeah. Always a, a fun loophole on that one. <laughs> so you can't actually buy it, but you can buy the stuff to grow it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I wonder if all this will happen in my lifetime. Like, like, you know, I, I mean, I, I the way it's, it's so slow. I, I imagine it maybe happening like towards the end of my lifetime, which is probably like another 20 or 30 years. Yeah. I mean, you know, so they, they outlawed all, all these things in the, in the 60s, 70s, uh, for a whole bunch of reasons that were not related to dangers of the medicines themselves. People fought really a long way to get there. And then, late 90s is when Rick Strassman's work was published. And so from there to here, it pretty much has been the psychedelic renaissance and it's speeding up. Mm-hmm. And certainly uh, MDMA through the maps will be federally legalized soon. It sounds like Compass Pathways and a few other of these big corporations will get psilocybin legalized in some capacity, probably very narrow window. But it's, you know, you can once you crack the door open, the door is opening. Yeah, I don't want and companies. I, I don't doing think it. they could. That's the thing. It. I don't want companies to do. It. I want people to do it, man. You know, I think these medicines should belong to the people, not to a company. If if you if it can be grown organically, like a tomato, it sh- yeah. should. That's the way it should be treated. I I one hundred percent agree, but I I think the companies are the the Trojan horse for us. They're the way to get the FDA to approve it. They're the way to get all of these regulations moved and everything like that. And once that's happened, mm-hmm. it's gonna, it's gonna move everything forward. And, you know, other nations are looking at this too. Canada and Australia have both legalized psilocybin and MTMA, very narrow windows again, but it's only a matter of time before, uh, before the people really gain access to these things. And uh, I think decriminalization is a, is a powerful way to do that. And here in Colorado, we paired a decriminalization law with a legalization law. And I imagine others are looking to us and seeing that and attempting to do that. Many, many cities across the country have decriminalized these things. Um, and that's just how you get, you get that ball rolling. You get accessibility through, uh, basically, just decriminalizing, making it so it's safe to use these things in some capacity, yeah. and then the legal aspects uh, will be there for our medical model that exists now. Hmm. Do Do you support recreational use of these also, not just medicinal? I do. Um, I find that recreational for me mixes in with spiritual and I found, you know, go to a music festival with your friends and you do one of these things and tell me it's not a spiritual experience and tell me you're not experiencing the love and community and connection with others in a way that uh, is, is hard to reach without some substances or, or, or really safe containers to do that. You know, I, I always want people to be safe and to, to research what they're doing, to know their dosages, to know the medicines, to know their bodies, to have support and to be in a proper container. But beyond that piece, I, I think, you know, it's our birthright to experience some of these expanded states of consciousness. 
the idea of criminalizing plants seems absurd to me. <laughs> the idea of the government telling you what you can put into your body or what you can do with your mind seems absurd to me. Uh, and so I do advocate for uh, recreational use, but in a in a very safe way. I, I don't want people to get hurt by these things, which is possible. Do you think it's possible for these um, plant medicines to become addictive? Yeah, um, it's not necessarily physiologically addictive. You know, we've done studies. These things are the safest of all of the drugs that you could come into contact with. But um, psychologically, they can become addicted. And um, I've seen it through the DMTX program, which we have, which is, I would say, a very far out program, trying to map the DMT space and communicate with entities. And, uh, and, so, and I field many people's questions and people reaching out to us. And through that, that process, I've seen folks who, who have overused and you know, habitually to a point where uh, it becomes hard to discern reality in some ways for them. And that becomes hard to connect with others and their community and uh, and just to function well. Um, so these things can be abused, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do those people, after stopping, resume some type of normal thought process? For the most part, yeah. I haven't really heard of anybody... Um, you know, breaking their brain in some way or so like we had a lot of scares through the seventies and like the drug war, um, and telling you that you can really just, you know, break your mind in some way, these things. And from a clinical standpoint can induce psychosis, um, if folks are prone to psychosis. So if you have bipolar and you don't know it, if you have schizophrenia and you don't know it and you take one of these substances, it can create your first episode. And so that, and in that way, it's very dangerous to, to not know your own body, to not know your own medical history, to not know what these substances can do. And if you're in a unsafe environment that's not contained, or you don't have support, uh, one of these episodes could hurt you or others. And so there's certainly a need to, um, just to hold these things in a, in a way that, that respects how powerful they can be and, um, uh, and that some folks, it's not for everybody. There's some folks that just shouldn't be taking these substances given their psychological makeup. Hmm. How about more intense psychedelics? Like when I was a kid, we used to smoke angel dust. <laughs> like, like that was like, you know, really, I don't know. I don't even, it like completely disconnects you from everything. Do you, Would you think that has a, a also a purpose or you think like something like that should not be used? Uh, I've never worked with that, never experienced it and haven't uh, met folks who have. Um, so I, I can't have. speak directly <laughs> uh, to that one, but I do find that most substances can be beneficial if used in a you know proper, meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, I can't remember the name of the author, but uh, drug use for adults. Um, it's a great book that kind of just points to the fact that we criminalize drugs uh, in ways based on who's using them and not necessarily based on what these substances are doing for, for people. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm for cognitive liberty. So I, and I'm for all decriminalization of all drugs. And, Me too. Um, 
from there, we can work on which ones are, are really beneficial and nurturing and help us be better uh, humans and better community members. And I'm sure there's a scale of that, which ones are really helpful and which ones aren't. But I find these are all really tools. And, you know, how are you using that tool? Um, is, it, is, it, is it a knife or is it a scalpel? You know, is it, mm-hmm. so. Um, so, yeah, in one sense, I think that everything can be beneficial um, if used in the proper container in the proper way. How about using these drugs to, this is, is really popular now, is using these psychedelics to break addiction. Yeah. Uh, so I you know, work with folks in our clinic all the time uh, doing work like this. And even in that first ayahuasca experience, uh, uh, half of the members there were people struggling with heroin addiction um, and, or PTSD or things like this. And um, we found that, that pretty much all of the psychedelics are helpful at rewiring our brain, that they increase neuroplasticity. And they turn down what's called the default mode network in our brain, which is just that the normal way that our thoughts are categorized and move mm-hmm. through our heads. Um, and so addiction or, you know, trauma or healing some past peace, all, all of these things become easier uh, with, uh, with these substances and in the proper containers. Um, I found, you know, iboga is a good one for addiction in particular, uh, which w- it was le- uh, decriminalized here. Um, in Colorado, but I don't know of any folks who have started working with it yet. Uh, but I know of many clinics in Mexico that, that I've worked with folks who will go down there and then, you know, need some more integration support and ongoing stuff. But uh, these things absolutely can help uh, folks get over addiction. When you do that, though, is it, is it like I can just go buy uh, some, grow my own shrooms and take them and then I'm done with my alcohol addiction? Or... Do I have to go to a special environment, work with a trained sitter or therapist to help guide me through the experience to help rewire the neural networks in my brain? Yeah. So like I mentioned, you know, with the cannabis piece, right, like safe to take these things. Um, And if you're trying to work on something in particular, whether it's trauma, whether it's addiction or PTSD, uh, you want somebody that knows how to work with trauma or PTSD or addiction because all of the normal skills that somebody needs to, to help somebody navigate some of these struggles are the same skills that you would need in those spaces for yourself. And so if you don't know how to navigate addiction or trauma or PTSD, you're not going to be able to kind of help get yourself out of that. That makes sense. You need, yeah. you need the person who knows how to actually do it. Because if I don't know how to do it and I just take the substance expecting it to happen, you know, my brain is going to keep running the same neural pathways that it has without somebody else suggesting something else. Yeah. Yeah. Just providing that support to know, okay, here's the next step. Here's, here's a a, a different way of looking at that thing. Um, And the medicine is just going to help kind of supercharge that that work. And so somebody that would take a couple years of of therapy, Mm -hmm. you could do in a shorter time window with these medicines. Um, even, uh, I believe, uh, AA, the 13th step was supposed to be something around LSD. Um, and they just didn't add that in once everything was illegal and all of that work. And mm-hmm. I know that there were studies in, in Canada right around that time that were pointing to th- that step actually working for folks. And I do imagine that as these legalize, the way we view addiction 
the way that we help folks get over addiction will shift with the recognition that we can use these substances to help people get off of the other substances. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess all that really causes addiction is habit. It's, it's running the same program over and over again. And I guess when you find a program that works better, then you're going to go with that one. Yeah, I think, you know, there's two kind of pieces to it that I really view. It's like almost all addiction is rooted in some version of trauma, some version of pain, right? Mm-hmm. Like um, a teacher of mine used to say, people don't come to us with their problems. They come to us with their solutions. And so, you know, somebody who's struggling with alcohol or some drug uh, issue, there's some, that thing is doing something to for them it's helping them get through some pain some problem then that becomes habituated and and you're running that program and so psychedelics gets to do both things where it takes you to the root and it takes you back to that pain back to that trauma helps you resequence that and process that and it makes you uh, more malleable so that you can put in a new kind of habit a new kind of pattern and the, the combo helps folks get out of that what is the difference between using a psychedelic with a trained sitter or therapist versus hypnotism, which is also putting a person into a relaxed state and putting in a new suggestion. Yeah. Uh, there's not a whole bunch of difference. Uh, many of our folks who have gone through our training program are hypnotherapists or have some background in that they pair really well together. Uh, I would just say that psychedelics are, um, just a little stronger in that sense because they they really do turn off what's called that that default mode network you can kind of soften that with hypnotherapy um you can turn it off with meditation but and they've done studies on it but it takes like high level meditators to turn it off um and so it's just a, a i think a, a different way to approach it in these ways and so like uh, many of the students that have come through our program that, that I've worked personally with, you know, help people get off of cigarettes and things like that through hypnotherapy. And then they comboed it with psychedelics or cannabis or something and, and felt that it kind of supercharged that same process. Hmm. Do you think there's any medicinal properties for alcohol? Like, like does alcohol actually serve a healing purpose or is it just garbage that people put in their body? You know, uh, again, I think I go back to the tool and how we use it. Mm-hmm. They've done studies on some indigenous cultures who have a very radically different relationship with alcohol. Um, I can't remember the name of the tribe, unfortunately. Uh, but there's one where, for instance, all the men in the tribe will drink alcohol one day a week together. They'll literally just sit on stumps and just drink grain alcohol until they fall off the stump. Mm-hmm. But the way that it's done is that's their time to process in community. And they're, they're all talking about their work week and their life and all of this stuff. And they found that it does, it's not detrimental to their culture. They, people don't get angrier that people aren't being abusive or anything like that. It's held within this container. Um, and so kind of looking at that in that way, I see that it's, it's how we interact with it, how our culture interacts with it. Um, and so I think that there could be medicinal properties to alcohol, certainly, um, if used, again, in appropriate ways. And I think it's very embedded in our culture. So it's hard 
for somebody to set that new pattern and create a new container and do it in a really healthy way because our culture is not doing that. Right, our culture so we don't have any models to look at. Drink beer, get drunk, and create chaos. Yeah. And I, you know, it's the same with my cannabis work with folks. I'll tell them all the time. It's what are you using it for? Right. Are you pushing something away? Are you pulling something to you? If you're pulling something to you, if you're trying to connect more deeply to something, then you're using it in a, in a a way that's in the right relationship. If you're pushing something away, trying to numb, trying to get away from something, it's not necessarily super beneficial for you. And that means like, and that those things can look very similar, right? Like, coming home from a long day of work and saying, I don't want to think about my, my day anymore and drinking some alcohol or smoking some cannabis, you're pushing something away. But if you come home from a long day of work and you're like, I just, I want to relax and I want to connect more deeply with my body with just, you know, settling and, and processing my day then you're pulling something closer to you. So the act can look identical. But what is your intention behind it? What is your relationship with the substance is, is the thing that's really going to shape uh, if it's beneficial for you or harmful. One of the weird things that I've noticed with cannabis is um, it's like my thoughts get louder. And also mm-hmm. I'm like, I see these thoughts. It's like, hey, who's this other guy in my head now? <laughs> it's, it's weird. Like, like, does everybody experience that? Yeah, no, uh, I'm reminded of the fact that often cannabis can elicit like paranoia with folks mm-hmm. or in some level of anxiety. Um, and I think that's more related to what you're describing there, which is it's amplifying some thought process, some pattern in your consciousness and your awareness. And it's wanting you to be, pay attention to the thing. But if you're in a setting or in a place where you don't want to pay attention to that thing, Mm-hmm. Then that becomes anxiety. You can't kind of can't get out of that thing, and, and you're worried. Is everybody looking at me? What's happening here? I can't. And, and that that voice just turns up and gets louder and louder and louder. Um, but in a setting where you're safe and supported, then you can explore those thoughts and you can have new insights. Yeah, and, uh, exactly. Like yeah. you suddenly see things from a perspective that weren't there before. Like, hey, why didn't I see that before? Why didn't I think of that before? You know, it's like obviously it was in my head because I'm mm-hmm. I'm having this experience. It was there, but either, either it was too much noise for me to see it, or the thought itself was not magnified enough for me to notice it. Yeah, and that's where I would say something like the spirit of cannabis, right? Like cannabis is saying, "Hey, pay attention to this thought. This is a really cool way to look at this or think about this thing." Or here's this thing that's not going so well in your life and and I'm going to just keep flashing it at you until <laughs> until you do something about it. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's it, it is, that's why I I do think that there is a spirit behind some of these medicines because it I don't know, like like maybe it's own maybe it, it's my own psychology or somebody else or whatever, but it does seem to know where the problem is and sometimes how to say, Hey, look over here. Here, over here's a solution that you're not looking at. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's the combination in my mind of the plant spirit, which is saying like, okay, here's that thing in your own inner kind of healing consciousness awareness that also knows like some part of you knows what's not working, what is working and it needs the support of this other medicine, this other spirit to say, Hey, 
it's this exact thing right here, mm-hmm. and this is what you need to look at. Yeah, because like an addiction, they would call like like the, like if a person does not recognize a clinician addiction, they're in denial, right? You know, so so maybe you add the substance, and all of a sudden the denial is lifted, and it's like, ah, I see the problem now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is um, which is why they work with addiction really well, or, or why they work with uh, really pretty much the the plethora of mental health conditions because some part of us knows something's not working and you combo that with a certain medicine at a certain time and in a, in a safe way. And it allows you to go right to that thing. In the world of psychology, how many psychologists out there or like what percentage do you think recognize the value of these medicines? Um, it's, it's, I would say it's the minority, but it's growing. Um, every clinician on our team, once they went through our training, once they experienced one of these medicines was like, I don't want to go back to just regular talk therapy. Like I can, I can help people so much more in this space. And, uh, I think when I started at this clinic, uh, three and a half years ago, um, I would, you know, we often reach out to folks, uh, therapists when they come to us or, or we ask them to reach out to them. And when I started, there was it was mostly people not okay with it. They were mostly not happy with it, and uh, our clients would have to kind of uh, not tell, not want to tell them, and then and, and just be like, okay, I'm going to do this work, and then I'll go back to my therapist. Now I find almost every single one that I come into contact with is excited. Most of the time, people are are being sent to us by their own therapists, saying like, actually, maybe you should go check this out. Um, so it, it's growing. Quickly and um, you know, back to that whole legalization space. Once one of those things pokes through all the way, uh, I think the floodgates will open and everybody will recognize that some, to some degree, these medicines can help somebody. So, what does somebody do? Like, like you know, I live in New Jersey, and you know, cybacillin is not legal. And say I wanted to do a therapy session with cybacillin, what would I do in that situation? So you'd come to us or you'd go to Oregon. Um, and so basically, we, I mean, we have, it's a regular clinic. You go through an intake process. You meet some folks. You meet our, you know, go through a medical screening. Once we we know that physically you're okay to do it, then you come out here for a retreat. Um, it's similar to what most folks have to do uh, pretty much anywhere in the United States, which is just, okay, I'm going to go to South America or I'm going to, go to Costa Rica or something like that to go to a retreat center, Mm -hmm. except now it's legalized, you know, here in Colorado and in Oregon and um, some different churches and stuff are also legalized in different areas. So you just kind of have to do some research and and find uh, some folks that are safe and legal and, and, you know, travel, (laughs) get that journey in. How about these, now there's also these illegal ayahuasca people now around like they'll rent like a hotel room or whatever and, you know, and, and do an ayahuasca ceremony. And some of these people, you know, maybe have even actually, maybe done like one with a real shaman, not even trained, just did it once with a shaman. And then somehow, you know, found out online how to make the concoction and they're going around doing this in these hotels or whatever. Yeah, it's very scary. And, and I've seen many folks come to our clinic to basically heal a bad psychedelic experience that they had 
um, either because their facilitator was unsafe or because uh, they didn't have their proper support. Like, okay, maybe maybe this guy in a hotel room uh, does have the right medicine and you take that and he leaves that in a good way, but then doesn't support you. And integration is a huge piece of psychedelic work. Uh, you have this experience, but how do you bring that into your life? How do you make meaning out of that? How do you sequence that in a way that makes sense to yourself? And this is back to that, you know, you want to have some support with some of these bigger medicines uh, to just help you kind of make sense of what you experienced. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's plenty of nefarious figures in the underground scene now, partly why I'm such a strong advocate for decriminalization so that people can go and report people that are doing something, you know, inappropriately or um, that are just damaging folks with these things. Uh, So that exists out there and, it's back to that space of really, you want to do your research. You want to know who these people are, what their backgrounds are, what their credentials are, who trained them. And, you know, I'll often tell folks like, ask them directly what their integration process is. What will they do to support you in the days and the weeks after one of these experiences? And that's a good indicator of if they're, they're legit and, and they know what they're doing. If, if they say there's nothing or, you know, we meet one time or something, then I would I would recommend not working with that person. So for a person who's doing it by themselves, how do they do integration? Yeah. Uh, this is that space of, you know, wanting to do it in the right way. If you're a totally healthy person, you still need integration. And so some <laughs> ways that you can do that is, you know, if you have a spiritual practice, if you if you journal, if you go out into nature, if you have friends, family, community that will, you know, talk with you and support you and help make sense of that. If you're hiding in your basement and you can't tell your family about it and you can't tell your community about it, then you should find somebody that you can tell about it. Um, because that's that is integration. Sharing that story, sharing that experience is helping you process that. Journaling, um, I think Fireside Hotline is a is a good resource for folks who are experiencing crisis or who have just had a psychedelic experience and need support. It's a free hotline service you can download an app on your phone. Um, so more and more support is coming out there, uh, but you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't approach any of these medicines without kind of having that container of like where am I using it? How am I preparing for it? And and how am I going to integrate it? How am I going to make sense of this and bring it home? Yeah, like I wonder, like what would happen, you know, I, what would happen if somebody does this by themselves, who say has suffered a horrible trauma in their childhood, like a, a rape or something like that, and they've stuffed it back in their head, they don't remember it, and like during the psychedelic experience, all of a sudden it pops up. What are they gonna do? You know? Yeah, yeah. That's when you you gotta you gotta reach out to integration specialists, like our clinic here in Boulder, um, the Fireside Hotline, other other resources. And, uh, and you know, you can get through that and, and it's a good thing to start that process of healing and, and mm-hmm. to begin that journey. But, uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend doing it on your own. I wouldn't recommend doing pretty much any psychedelic on your own. Now, I mean that in the sense of that you don't have support, that you're, you can do it on your own mm-hmm. in your own home, but someone should know you're doing it. Someone you should be able to be say like if I don't call you in ten hours, like maybe come check on me, you know. If, um, 
somebody that you can share that story with somebody that you can can bounce those ideas off community is really the piece and because these things are illegal in so many parts of our country right now so many people are isolated and uh that i think is is the worst way to to kind of experience these things because you have these beautiful insights about yourself and reality and then you have no one to help no one to hold that with you you're holding it all on your own and um so I would also just encourage folks to find community. There's psychedelic clubs probably in almost every city in the United States. Really? They're not like doing psychedelics, but they're talking about it. They're meeting. Um, and uh, I would just encourage folks to find those, even if it's just online. So they would just find Google a, psychedelic club, New Jersey, and they'll pop up? Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. I'm sure there's a Facebook group or a Discord or something. Uh, just you know, find the others Timothy Leary used to say that, uh, and I think that's so important to just have other folks kind of balance things out with with these substances that are so mind expansive and can be so mystical in nature uh, and so just disorienting and disruptive to our normal way of understanding reality. You want to have other human beings to to bounce those things off of, so that you don't end up far off in reality in a way that is damaging to to yourself and to to the way that you move through this world and community is the way that you can kind of hold that because somebody's going to tell you like hey buddy maybe slow down on on those mushrooms or you know something like that (laughs) (laughs) um so so after all your experiences you know from from not believing in any of the spiritual stuff to where you are now what do you think reality is? I mean, do do you think that reality is real? Do you think what we're experiencing, you and I talking right now, is a real experience? Or do you think that this is some type of dream inside of a dream? Because that's kind of how it feels mm-hmm. like when you're in, on a psychedelic. It's like you're inside of a dream, inside of a dream kind of feeling. Yeah, I think Terrence McKinney used to say uh, that these experiences are more real than real. Mm-hmm. They, there's some kind of level of a felt sense of reality of these experiences that feels realer than the the one that we have right now. Um, I think it's all, I think it's all real. Um, And I would say the more that I've done psychedelics, the more that I've done this work with folks, the more that I don't know. uh, When I started and I was just on my own, I had that first psychedelic Uh experience and I was studying in in college. I was like, I think I'm going to figure this out. Like maybe the Buddhists (laughs) figured it out. Maybe the Taoists did. uh, Somebody figured it out. You know, the more that I've done them, the more that I've worked with them, uh, I I fall further and further away from feeling like, oh, this is it. I I know what it is. Now it feels like I have no idea what it is. Um, but the thing that I often will share with clients is that I, I, I think it's bumper stickers. It's all bumper stickers. And by that, I mean, you know, love everybody, tell the truth, uh, you know, be kind, uh, treat others the way you won't want to be treated. Those like just bumper stickers that, that we've seen all through our lives that most spiritual traditions will advocate for in some way, shape or form. But when we're walking through our normal everyday life, you see that, you know, oh, okay, it's just a cute little bumper sticker. It doesn't mean anything. When you have these experiences, when you go into those spaces, 
they become real. Like, oh, I should love everybody because I feel like I am everybody. Or I should tell the truth more just because that's what feels good. That's what the mushrooms said. That's what the space is. And, um, and so I, I hesitate to say I know, you know what the reality might be, but I, I land in this space of thinking that it really is just these bumper stickers. It's really these simple kind of truths that, that we've discovered for thousands of years mm. and we tell ourselves over and over and over again, uh, but we forget through our normal everyday life that, that they're really true. What do you think would happen, or do you think this would happen if, for example, um, these hardcore right-wing people tried to backpedal all the progress we've made and go right back into prohibition, just like they have with, um, you know, done with abortion. I think it's definitely a possibility. It's the thing that uh, keeps me up at night sometimes. It's it's what I'm worried about when it comes to those underground folks who are abusing people or not treating these things the, the proper way. It's what I worry about, particularly with our medical model around ketamine. Mm-hmm. I've seen online apps that are subscription based with ketamine. We know ketamine is, is addictive and you're upselling people and subscription services. It's a recipe for abusing these things and getting folks hurt or creating another opioid kind of epidemic thing. And then the natural response from the government will be to stamp these things out and shut it down. And so I think it's, it's, it's certainly a possibility and it's why the fight is definitely not over. It's just starting and why we have to really advocate for a right relationship to these things and for changing the laws and, uh, and for the healing that they do work do and, um, and why I honor all the folks who have come before me who have worked really hard to get it to the point where I can offer these services legally. Yeah. And I mean, the one thing though is we always have going is, is the actual natural plant medicines because we can just grow them ourselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but some of the other stuff, you know, yeah, like ketamine and MDMA and things like that, yeah. it's different, different story. Yeah, and I, I mean, I still want them to be legalized so that, that people can have proper education on how to grow it. Uh, you know, what are your dosages? And can can you go to somebody and get the support that you need? Can you feel safe enough to reach out to a hotline or to find an online group? And you know, all of these things, that's the criminalization of them is what makes them dangerous in my mind. And it's like, yes, all these things should be held in, in a way and, and they can hurt folks if you use them inappropriately. Impro- but when you legalize it, when you take all the stigma away, mm-hmm. people can have the resources to know how to use it properly and to have right relationship. Yeah. I'm often ridiculed from my point of view that all drugs should be legal. People are like, what are you crazy? Like even heroin? I'm like, yes, because then if it's regulated, people are not going to have fentanyl in their damn heroin and die all over the place. It would save lives. It makes sense. Yep. It's, it's, it's one of the big things in the decrim movement of just like, why don't you just want to save human lives? Yeah, like why we, not? people who are overdosing for the most part are not doing it on purpose. It's an accidental situation and all of that could be eliminated by decriminalizing it, destigmatizing it, and giving support to folks who are in those places. Yeah, get you know, make it legal, and then when people have problems with it, we help them. Like whatever yeah. happened to helping people, man? You know. Yeah. It kind of that's what keeps me 
<laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. So this was a great interview, man. I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, um, we covered a lot of ground. And uh, before we wrap it up, like, where is the best place for people to find you, to find your center, to find a sitter? Where can they go to get these therapies? All that information. Yeah. So uh, our clinic's website is medicinalmindfulness.org. Uh, that's where you can find all of the services for integration, for mental health, any of that support. Uh, we do free intake calls, so you're welcome to just reach out and, and see if this is right for you. Psychedeliccitterschool.org is our training program. So if anyone's interested in, in helping folks heal and, and doing this work, they can uh, reach out there and apply. You don't need to have a clinical background or anything like that to be a sitter. Accept people from all backgrounds. Um, DMTX.org is our kind of exploratory space. So if you're looking to like really, you're a psychonaut, you love these things, you know your doses and such, that, that's a place to reach out for that. Um, and yeah, just uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for helping get the word out there for these things. Uh, like I said, the, the the fight is still on to to legalize these things. So yeah, yeah we're just yeah. on that edge where it could go either way. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. thank you. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, and just hang on for one moment while I play the outro. Oh, and I'll put all those links in the notes of this episode. <laughs> for God. <Thanks. laughs> Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need. You can find it on Amazon, and it will change your life. Because remember, everything that it says was first imagined. loved what you listened to today, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable with Gary Cochulio.